If you appreciate Issues Etc., our 24-7 music and talk stations, and our daily verse-by-verse Bible study, The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, please include a bequest in your will or trust for these worldwide media resources. A bequest allows you to receive an estate tax charitable deduction and reduces the tax burden on your family. Ensure your children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren the opportunity to listen by including a bequest in your will or trust for Issues Etc., Lutheran Public Radio, and the Word of the Lord endures forever. I continue to contend that the biggest problem we face as a movement is not that people have heard our arguments and rejected them. It's that they've never heard a persuasive pro-life case or never taken the time to consider one. The catechism that we've been told by the world is Christianity is backward. It's quite the opposite. The push toward LGBTQ rhetoric is a push backwards in time, backwards to a pre-Christian morality. The higher critic is dead or dying, and Jesus rose again from the dead. So I'm going to take his view of the Bible rather than your view of the Bible. I think we need to be very open to the reality that if baptism is a new birth and your first birth took place without your knowledge or consent, then your second birth can also take place without your knowledge or consent. It is the gift to you of a new life. Hi, this is Mark in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and fathers watching their four-month-old daughters love listening to Issues Etc. Where did God come from? Why do we say he was born of the Virgin Mary, but he made heaven and earth? And did dinosaurs exist in the Garden of Eden? Some questions from some children for the first hour of Issues Etc. Greetings and welcome. We're coming to you live this Friday afternoon, January the 5th. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Pastor Jonathan Connor joins us for our ongoing series, Kids Have Questions. Then, Pastor Chris Rosebro will bring us some 2024 prophecies from some alleged prophets in This Week in Pop Christianity in Hour 2. Pastor Jonathan Connor is pastor of Zion Lutheran Church in Manning, Iowa. Jonathan, welcome back. Thanks, Todd. It's really a privilege to be here. Let me just, I want to say real quickly, thank you to what you and your team does. I truly appreciate the work you do for the glory of Christ and for the upbuilding of the church. So appreciative for the work of issues, et cetera, and just a real privilege for me to be just a small piece of that. So thank you. Well, thank you. Thanks for being part of it. Absolutely. Refresh our memory. Why is it important to solicit questions of this nature from our children and and alleviate any parental hesitancy or fear about doing so themselves? Absolutely. I think this is so important. Number one, our kids have questions. Just start with that understanding. They have questions and they are going to ask them, whether they're asking them of their peers or whether they're searching them out online, which is in some ways just their peers, but online or through other means. But they're looking for answers or they're going to have these questions and feel very alone in them because they can't find anybody to take them seriously and to engage them with these questions. So they have these questions. This is not a theoretical possibility. They do. They live in this world. They're going to wrestle with these issues. And the world is putting all kinds of things in front of their face every day. So 
parents cannot be afraid of this. And my encouragement for parents is, one, just like I've talked about before, for parents and for the church, to find a way to create a culture of questions where the questions are safe, where they are welcome, kids don't need to be afraid of asking them. And number two, they don't have to be afraid of being told, oh, just believe, that sort of answer. That's very patronizing to a child, and they quit asking the questions. But number two, creating a culture doesn't mean, parents, you have to be the expert on everything. Because you have a pastor, go ask him if you have those questions. He'll he'll love that his people are having these conversations. So I think for our kids to know that parents are willing and ready to be engaged in these conversations with them, that the church is ready to be engaged in these conversations, and this is the place we want to be having these conversations, I think that's critical for the well-being of our children, faith-wise, mentally, in so many ways that they're welcomed into a conversation that honestly predates them, but they're welcomed into something bigger than them. And like I've said before, the church has been around for 2,000 years. We've had time to think about a lot of these things. We have good answers. So I think it needs to be inculcated at the home, in that home environment, but it should definitely spill over into the church and then vice versa, back and forth, so that we are in conversation together, even if we don't know all the answers. The fact that we're open to them, I think, will speak volumes to our kids and and to our adults. I think that would be a good place to start. The first question we're going to take up has to do with a combination of things, and usually it is posed to Christians in the form of a gotcha you know, you guys believe that Adam and Eve rode on dinosaurs or something like that. Did dinosaurs exist in the Garden of Eden? This is such a great question. And to parents who are listening, I guarantee you, your kids have this question. I get asked questions pretty regularly by kids about dinosaurs. And what I love about kids asking this is they're not afraid to ask it. A lot of adults Honestly, they're just afraid to ask that dinosaur question because that very reason you just said, because it's kind of become the gotcha thing. And the fear is, if I ask the gotcha question, there's no answer for it. So that's going to, you know, challenge my faith sort of thing. So I love that kids ask this question. They're not afraid to ask it. They're very blunt when they ask it, and they're thoughtful in their question. So I'm going to answer the kid's question, and then I'm going to take a few minutes to unpack this because there's a lot I really want to unpack. This is such a big question. So I first start out by saying, well, why wouldn't they have? So why wouldn't they have existed in the Garden of Eden? So if you think biblically, it's perfectly reasonable. The problem is that we've all been conditioned to think that dinosaurs went extinct long before man existed. But what does the evidence show? Dinosaurs of the land-dwelling variety were created on day six. Humans were created later on day six. So yes, dinosaurs lived when humans lived and could have been present in the Garden of Eden. Consider a few things. The word dinosaur, which just means terrible lizard, wasn't coined until the 1800s. Long after the Bible had been written, do you think it's possible the Bible had a different word for dinosaur? So check out God's word in Job chapter 40. Behold behemoth which I made as I made you. He eats grass like an ox. Behold, his strength in his loins and his power in the muscles of his belly. He makes his tail stiff like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze, his limbs like bars of iron. Well, what does that sound like to you? And did you know 
that ancient civilizations have all sorts of art depicting dinosaur-like creatures. We have found petroglyphs and artifacts and clay figures that look like dinosaurs. We found rock carvings of dinosaur-like creatures, creatures that look like what we call Triceratops, Pterodactyl, even Tyrannosaurus rex. In the child answer, I put some pictures in the answer. So, so I say, see below for the child. I can't put the pictures through audio, though. So I continue. These are all from ancient civilizations. On several occasions, scientists have discovered dinosaur bones that have not been fully fossilized, even bones with red blood cells and stretchy tissue. These dinosaurs couldn't have died millions of years ago, or those bones would be fully fossilized and no tissue would remain. So when you throw out the evolutionary assumptions and follow the evidence wherever it leads, it makes a pretty convincing case that dinosaurs didn't die out millions of years before humans, but that they coexisted just as the Bible teaches. Then I say to the child, if you want to learn more, ask me and I'll give you resources. So this is one of the things I often do if I have the opportunity with parents, for example, afterwards. If the child asks a question like this and they have shown an interest in dinosaurs, I will sometimes text the parent and say, hey, your child asked a really great question about dinosaurs, and here's a, a book, or here's a video, here's a, a website. You might want to check this out and uh, go into more details with your child, because they're obviously asking this question. So it's a way then to follow up with parents. But like you mentioned earlier, Todd, this question is often put out there kind of as a gotcha thing, and it has caused a lot of headaches for Christians, but it really shouldn't. The reason why it's been causing us headaches is because we have been marinating in these evolutionary assumptions, and we've been marinating in them since birth. Every children's book, every science book, every television program, they all repeat the liturgy millions of years, millions of years, millions of years. And really, this is a good reminder of the power of liturgies. Even the word dinosaur is used to indicate something that is prehistoric, right? These are basically synonyms in our culture. So we're taught from the moment of birth just to accept that dinosaurs died out millions of years before humans came on the scene. And then we come to the Genesis text, and our kids say, well, if God was going to create dinosaurs, it would seem like he'd have done it somewhere in creation week, so where are they? And then we have to do all these hermeneutical gymnastics to try to get dinosaurs on and off the scene millions of years before humans. Well, what if we just for a moment, I would say permanently, but just throw out these evolutionary assumptions and just look at the evidence at face value. Okay, there's a quote attributed to C.S. Lewis. I'm not sure if he said it for, not, for sure or not. All I know is whoever said it is way smarter than me. But the, the quote was this, the most dangerous ideas in a society are not the ones being argued, but the ones that are assumed. So what I want us to do is to question the assumptions. So we take our biblical text for starters. If it's taken at face value, which I think we should do, it would seem to suggest that dinosaurs were created on day six. It just doesn't use the word dinosaur, but we wouldn't expect to see that word in there. If we take it at face value, then I think it would be reasonable to we might find some evidence of dinosaurs and man coexisting. So in my answer to the child, I mentioned Job's description of behemoth. We also have Leviathan in scripture described. And I know that 
Some people want to suggest that these were just symbolic literary creatures, and they're there to communicate this sort of anti-Edenic chaos forces that were present. Okay, I can acknowledge literarily these creatures may communicate these ideas, but that does not mean that the author simply made these creatures up. It seems much more likely to me that the authors had some actual knowledge of these creatures, and then they employed them in a double duty sort of way in their writings. In my answer to the child, I also mentioned art and carvings and other depictions of dinosaurs. Now, I'm just going to rattle off just a few in case people want to Google them, and you can look up this more on your own if you want to. But I want to say up front before I do this, if you start Googling these things, what you're going to find out is that every one of them is going to be contested by those who believe dinosaurs went extinct millions of years before humans. And here's the strategy. They're going to scoff at the idea. So they're going to make you think, even considering that these artistic depictions of dinosaurs could have actually been because people saw them, they're going to make you think that you are a fool even to consider that. So if you can bring shame upon a person or embarrass a person for having an idea, you can stop them from actually considering it. And that's actually the tactic that's oftentimes in play. But if you stop and think about it, you say, well, why, why are they taking that approach? Well, because they are starting with this presupposition that these creatures went extinct millions of years ago. Why? Because they've bought into the evolutionary worldview. And in that worldview, that must be true. So just understand there's a worldview behind this. So my point, though, in sharing these examples is not that every single one of them is this amazing slam dunk case. I'm more interested in simply making a cumulative case, and I think this will do that. So again, if you look these things up, you're going to find all kinds of alternative explanations. And yes, these are possible explanations. What I'm going to say to you is, let's just put the assumptions aside for a minute and say, is it possible that when we see ancient depictions of dinosaurs, that they may have been depicting something they saw? All right. So here we go. Oh, I wanted to mention one other thing. So Carl Sagan, he, he actually writes about this back in the 70s in his book, The Dragons of Eden. And what he does, he's aware of these depictions of dinosaurs, and he's aware that they look a lot like dinosaurs, and they aren't drawing them from fossils they dug up in the ground. So he's trying to account for why do these ancient people depict what looks like dinosaurs? And his answer, I mean, this, is, this shows you how desperate Sagan was. His answer was that these depictions were traumatic evolutionary hangovers from the experiences that the great apes had that they passed down into the psyches of the descendants, their descendants, who had not seen the dinosaurs, but they're kind of leftover psychic trauma, and they are depicting these traumas that are hangovers from these great apes. Wow, talk about desperate, right? So you can see the explanations get pretty desperate because Sagan believes evolution is true. That is the given, and millions of years is a must. So if we have artistic depictions of dinosaurs, it can't be the case. We have to find some explanation. All right. So those of you who are curious, you can Google Tapram Temple. That's T-A-P-R-O-H-M, Temple, near Siem Reap, Cambodia. Just type in Stegosaurus with that, and you're going to see what looks a lot like a Stegosaurus 
carved into this temple surrounded by other animals that we still see today, like monkeys and swans and water buffalo and parrots and so forth. And right in the middle of it sure looks like a stegosaurus. Or you can Google a Natural Bridges National Monument in Utah and the Apatosaurus, or Google the Havasupi Canyon in Arizona, or Google Bishop Bell's tomb in Carlisle, England, or Google the Ica, I-C-A, not Inca, but I-C-A, the Ica stones in Peru and dinosaurs, and you're going to see what looks as clear as day, like depictions of dinosaurs in every single one of these. Now, my point is not that any one of these is a slam dunk. And like I said, every one of them is questioned by evolutionists who are committed to dinosaurs going extinct millions of years ago, all right? I'm more interested in the cumulative case. And if we take scripture at face value, it shouldn't be surprising to us to see depictions of dinosaurs because they would have coexisted with man. And another cumulative piece, you actually have writings in history from individuals who are describing what sounds like dinosaurs or something similar to it. So you have Pliny the Elder who writes in the late 70s AD on a book called Natural History. This is what he writes. He says, it is in India which produces the largest elephants as well as the dragon. And the dragon is itself of such enormous size as to envelop the elephants within its folds. Well, a dragon would be an ancient word that most likely refers to some sort of dinosaur, even though we've kind of mythologized the dragon. It's an ancient word that would refer to what sounds a lot like a dinosaur. Or we have from the same time period, just a little bit later in the second and third century, uh, Flavius Philostrus, he writes this, the whole of India is girt with dragons of enormous size, for not only the marshes are full of them, but the mountains as well. And there's not a single ridge without one. Now the marsh kind are sluggish in their habits and are 30 cubits long, and they have no crest standing upon their heads. I mean, okay, even if we grant that there may be some element of hyperbole, like, you know, they're on every ridge, it seems pretty obvious that they're basing their writings on something they saw, some reality. And I also mentioned in my answer to the child, non-fossilized dinosaur tissue. The better term is probably original biomaterials, but this has been documented for decades. I mean, this is not new. The most famous is probably Mary Schweitzer's discovery of pliable tissue in a T. rex femur, but you can find descriptions of, of soft and pliable tissue in a triceratops horn, and you can find collagen fiber bundles in a, a Psittacosaurus and unaltered pigments. So these are like cardinoids and melanins in a Psittacosaurus. You can find scale skin and hemoglobin decay products that were still red in a Mosasaur found in Kansas. You have endogenous protein from, a, a, this is a great dinosaur name, but a Lufingosaurus. This was from China. You have non-collagen protein fragments in an iguanodon bone. You have amino acids in a seismosaurus from New Mexico. You have still flexible proteinaceous marine material in a tube worm, a marine tube worm from the Siberian drill core sample. Every one of these things is supposed to be millions of years old, but they've all been found with original biomaterials. So, I mean, that's very suggestive. And just like with the ancient dinosaur depictions, every one of these is contested. But again, ask why. Why are they so hotly contested? Why are they written off immediately? Why are they trying to write this off as some sort of bacteria that has kind of overtaken these, these samples and couldn't actually be endogenous? In other words, inherent to the organism itself. Why? What's driving that? 
That's a worldview. It's, it's a starting assumption that insists that dinosaurs, they had to die out millions of years before man because evolution is true. Now, personally, I think it's time that we question the assumptions because everything I just shared is consistent with what we would expect if we take scripture at face value. God created the dinosaurs on day six. Dinosaurs and man coexisted. What happened to the dinosaurs? Okay, shocker, they went extinct. Now, a fuller explanation would take too long, but I think there's strong evidence of an ice age that would have followed the flood. So you got warm oceans, you have greater evaporation, you have blocked sun from volcanic ash, so you have cooler continents, which is a perfect recipe for an ice age, one in which the dinosaurs obviously didn't fare very well. But that's for a much longer answer. But for listeners who want to dig into this, my encouragement is start questioning the assumptions and uh, follow the evidence where it leads. And I think you'll be surprised. The evidence is quite consistent with what the scriptures teach about God creating. And yes, he would have created the dinosaurs on day six. Just a brief follow-up. The question often is, well, were there dinosaurs on Noah's Ark? And the explanation I've heard from several guests is, well, of course they were, but they didn't take the big ones because that would have been impractical. They took one kind of dinosaur and they're still with us today. Yeah, so that's a great example. So number one, right. So dinosaurs, oh, dinosaurs on the ark, that's laughable. And part of that's because we have some pretty mm, abysmal Christian art where we have these Noah's arcs like a bathtub and you got the giraffe's head sticking out and the, the elephant trunk hanging down. So they, they just make this into this laughable thing. But why wouldn't the dinosaurs have been on the ark? Number one, they wouldn't take the older slash bigger ones. They would have taken the juveniles. The biggest dinosaur egg that we've ever discovered has been about the size of a football. So they start out pretty small. So you wouldn't expect them to take the huge dinosaurs on there. Number two, you mentioned the kinds. Yes, this is exactly right. This is an important distinction. What goes on the ark is not two or seven of every species. That is not what the text says. It says kind. And so you have the representative kinds, and you have some much better thinkers who are more technical on this than I am. But like, for example, use the dog as an example. It'd be easier for us to understand. The dog kind speciates into great diversity, but you would have an original dog kind from which you would get speciation. Same thing with dinosaurs. You'd have a handful of varieties of dinosaur kinds from which you would get speciation. You wouldn't take every species. You'd have the representative kinds. They come off the ark. And what happens to a lot of creatures after they exit the ark? We have a lot of creatures that have gone extinct. Among those, it seems that the dinosaurs would be among those who went extinct. So yes, I don't think we should let the ark be another one of those sort of gotcha things. We just need to pay attention to what the text says and be more specific in our answer. And I would also encourage the more we can steer away from the sort of bathtub Noah's Ark, the better, because we kind of do ourselves in when we start to portray the Ark that way, because we've already sort of given it away and said, yep, it's just a fairy tale. And I think that's a poor move on our part. Pastor Jonathan Connor is our guest. It's part 18 of our series, Kids Have Questions. When we come back, was God a kid? If he's eternal, then was he a kid?
Unforgiveness is a prison, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for January will help you break out of the unforgiveness in your own life. It's titled, Unforgivable? How God's Forgiveness Transforms Our Lives. This new book is published by Concordia Publishing House. Their phone number, 1-800-325-3040. Or learn more about Unforgivable at issuesetc.org. Unforgivable, How God's Forgiveness Transforms Our Lives, The Issues Etc. Book of the Month. As we bid farewell to the old year and welcome the new, let's embrace the promise of new beginnings. In this journey, we are reminded that each year is a gift from the Creator, filled with opportunities, hope, and blessings. Wishing you a new year where your faith is strengthened, your joy abounds, and you find God's grace in every moment. Happy New Year from Lutheran Church Extension Fund. Talk radio for the thinking Christian. You're listening to Issues Etc. Teaching your student to read should not be complicated. Memoria Press's Phonics uses common sense and the classical approach with their First Start Reading program for the most effective and efficient way to teach your child how to read. If you're interested in learning more, visit them at memoriapress.com and use the coupon code LPR24 at checkout. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time. Not everyone is comfortable with new technology. Dial A Podcast gives all generations of your congregation an easy way to hear your sermons or even devotionals and Bible studies. Once you've completed a simple one-time setup, we take care of the rest. All your congregants have to do is dial the number from any phone to listen to your latest podcast, all at no additional cost to them. Dial A Podcast. Extend the reach of your sermons. Get started at dialapodcast.com now. We are in our series, Kids Have Questions. Pastor Jonathan Connors, our guest pastor of Zion Lutheran Church in Manning, Iowa. Here's an excerpt from the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for January, Unforgivable. While many may agree that certain people seem less evil than others, God doesn't view his creatures that way. He demands perfection from all because no one can meet his standard. He judges each one sinful and worthy of eternal punishment. But because he loves all, He sent his son to die for all. God forgives everyone through Jesus Christ. The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for January is called Unforgivable, How God's Forgiveness Transforms Our Lives. You'll find this book at our website, issuesetc.org, or you can call Concordia Publishing House and order Unforgivable, 1-800-325-3040, 1-800-325-3040. Jonathan, here's another question. Was God a kid? If he is eternal, then was he a kid? Isn't that a great question? I mean, it takes a kid to ask this. I think adults maybe sometimes are too afraid to ask these sorts of questions. But I I love this question. Now, it's going to take me a little bit of sorting out because there's a yes and a no in this question and the answer to this question. But let me start with what I said to the child. First, wonderful question. Here's the short answer. Jesus went through the stages of human development from zygote to embryo to fetus to infant to child and so on. But God, in his essence, was never a child. 
In Malachi 3, God says, I, the Lord, do not change. And Moses writes in Numbers 23, God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Now, these verses are talking about God not changing his mind like man does, waffling back and forth between decisions. But they also help us understand the unchanging nature of God. We also see in Exodus 3 that God refers to himself as, I am who I am. In other words, God is the eternal being one. This is different than being one who is becoming. In other words, you are becoming a man. So you are growing and developing. God is the being one. He is the eternal source of being. So as such, we do not understand that God underwent any development or maturing or growth. He is the eternal being one, perfectly wise and infinite in his knowledge. He didn't have to learn knowledge. He has known it fully forever. Okay, so that's where my answer to the child ends. And it took a little bit of being very careful with my words. But I want to notice us to notice this, first of all, that God in his godness doesn't change. So we don't worship a Mormon God who starts as a man, then matures into a God, right? So the Athanasian Creed does a masterful job of laying out Scripture's doctrine of God. And I would just put a plug here in for why it's so important to confess the creeds of the church. I often describe the creeds to people like the bumpers that you put in the bowling alleys to keep your bowling ball out of the gutter. Well, this is the creeds are there to keep your theological ball out of the gutter. All right. So the, the creeds are really a remarkable gift to the church and they help keep our theology out of the gutter. But the Athanasian Creed is very specific on its doctrine of God, on what it teaches. And it says the whole three persons are co-eternal with each other and co-equal. So that in all things, the Trinity and unity and unity and Trinity is to be worshipped. So God in his godness is unchanging. Now, when it comes to Christ's incarnation, we do have change and growth. But again, this is important. Not in godness, but here in manness. So again, the Athanasian Creed is very helpful. It says, Jesus is God begotten from the substance of the Father before all ages, and he is man, born from the substance of his mother in this age. So, in this way, God not only became man, he became a kid. I appreciate the way that the hymn, Once in Royal David City, puts it in the second or third verse. For he, that's Jesus, for he is our childhood's pattern, Day by day, like us, he grew. He was little, weak, and helpless. Tears and smiles, like us, he knew. And he feels for all our sadness, and he shares in all our gladness. So, as astonishing as it sounds, God is eternal and unchanging, and God was a kid. And I think that's pretty exciting to tell a kid, because being a kid can sometimes be pretty hard and confusing. And to know that God lived as a kid, I think that can be pretty special to our children. Pastor Jonathan Connor is our guest. It's part 18 of our series, Kids Have Questions. The next question is, 
Is there a reason God doesn't speak to us or send an angel down to prove his existence? If you appreciate Issues Etc., our 24-7 music and talk stations, and our daily verse-by-verse Bible study, The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, please include a bequest in your will or trust for these worldwide media resources. A bequest allows you to receive an estate tax charitable deduction and reduces the tax burden on your family. Ensure your children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren the opportunity to listen by including a bequest in your will or trust for Issues Etc., Lutheran Public Radio, and the Word of the Lord endures forever. Listen to the best of the church's music for the Epiphany season at lutheranpublicradio.org. Sacred music for the Epiphany season, 24-7. LutheranPublicRadio.org. Hello, this is Roy Askins with The Lutheran Witness. You've heard me talk about all the great content we publish in the print magazine of The Lutheran Witness, but I wanted to share with you that we have even more online. Visit our website, witness.lcms.org, where you'll hear even more content on worship this month in particular from Cantor Phil Magnus. We also have a series on literature right now going on and a series on church art with much more planned in the future. You can get all that for free on witness.lsms.org. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. Located an hour west of Chicago, Sycamore is home to St. John Lutheran Church, a confessional liturgical congregation faithfully delivering our Lord's gracious gifts. As repentant sinners clothed in the righteousness of Christ, we worship, study, pray, eat, and fellowship together. Join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. for the Divine Service. To learn more, visit us on the web at stjohnsycamore.org. Lutheran. It's not a label. It's a confession. You're listening to Issues Etc. I think every man, every Christian should consider, at least, the possibility of God calling him into the holy ministry. Issues Etc. regular guest, Dr. Carl Fakencher of Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. Because that's the way that God has designed for faith in Christ Jesus to be spread, for the gift of eternal life that Christ Jesus earned by his death and resurrection to be shared with people, by the washing of baptism for infants and for adults, for the instruction, the proclamation of the word that happens uh, on a nonstop basis in God's kingdom. God uses people, he uses men, to be those proclaimers, to be those men who who share the, the sacraments. If you've ever considered becoming a pastor, contact Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Their phone number, 1-800-481-2155, 1-800-481-2155, or visit ctsfw.edu. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. It's our series, Kids Have Questions, with Pastor Jonathan Connor. Here's another question, Jonathan. Is there a reason God doesn't speak to us or send an angel down and prove his existence? 
Oh, yeah, this is such a great question. It's going to take me a little bit of time to unpack this because there's a lot baked into this. So let me first answer the child. And the answer is a little bit longer this time to the child because there's a lot to uh, unpack. So first the child. This is an excellent question. Let me come at it a few different ways. First, let's turn to Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Okay, this is important. God has spoken to his people in many and various ways throughout the centuries. But now that we have come to the last days, to the final days before the end, he has spoken to us in and by Jesus. And we have the word of Jesus in the Bible. So if we want to hear God speak, all we need to do is listen to Scripture. Second, Peter talks about the significance of this word in 2 Peter. He starts out by talking about the experience he had when he saw Jesus transfigured, which must have, must, just must have been amazing. But then he says this, And we have this prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Do you see what he's saying? The experience was amazing, but it was very short-lived. It was a fleeting experience, but the prophetic word, which we have in the Bible, is permanent and lasting. And this is the problem with experiences, like an angel, for instance. They would surely be amazing at the moment, but then they would end. Time would pass, and we would be tempted either to forget it or to think God should send another angel or another experience. Remember Old Testament Israel? God brought them through the Red Sea and what must have been a truly astonishing experience. The sea piled up in walls on the left and the right, and they were enabled to walk through it on dry ground. Who could ask for a better experience than that? But a very short time after that, what did they do? They gave up on God and had Aaron make an idol for them to pray to. The experience didn't last. And finally, Jesus tells a parable in Luke 16 about a rich man and a poor man. The rich man totally ignored the poor man and rejected the Lord. When the rich man died, he was condemned to hell. In hell, however, he called out to Abraham in heaven and asked Abraham to give his siblings some sort of sign or experience or even to raise up someone from the dead to go to them and warn them about rejecting God. But you know what Abraham said? Luke tells us, Abraham said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. In other words, if they won't pay attention to the written word of God, then no experience will convince them to listen. They will find some way to explain it away and ignore it. So if you want to hear God speak to you, Listen to his word in scripture. And remember that God has established a church that gathers around that word regularly to hear God speak. Regarding God's existence, time will keep me from a longer answer, but the Bible makes it clear that it is not a lack of evidence for the existence of God. Anyone who takes a thoughtful look at the evidence of creation can see the abundance of evidence for God's existence. His fingerprints are all over it. So it's not the lack of evidence. It's that sinful man suppresses, see Romans 1.18, the evidence so that he doesn't have to acknowledge God as Lord.
Okay, so that's where my answer to the child ends. Let me, let me build on this a little bit because I think this is really important. First, God has spoken to us in his son whose word is recorded in scripture. Somebody once put it this way. If you want to hear God speak, read your Bible. If you want to hear God speak out loud, read it out loud. Now, before anybody starts protesting, but you're limiting God. No, actually, I'm not. If God wants to speak in some extraordinary way, he can do it. I'm not limiting God. I'm limiting us. And it's not really me limiting us. God limits us because he tells us where we can reliably go to hear him, his son, his word. But now, okay, <laughs> we have this obsession with the personal experience in America. Lots of reasons for that, but we have an obsession with the personal experience. Now, we don't say it explicitly, but we don't think scripture is enough. I'll give you an example. All I have to do is mention the series, Jesus Calling, and you can see what I mean. Now, I know as soon as I say that, I am poking a hornet's nest because this is like the Harry Potter of the evangelical world, right? You better not say anything negative about it or the shame storm is going to descend on you. All right, but look, what was the premise of the Jesus Calling books? Those of you who may appreciate these books, have you, have you ever read what Sarah Young says, it, the premise for these books, right? Her premise was, that God has a personal message just for me. Here's what she, this, this, this is what she wrote. I'll just read what she wrote. She says, I began to wonder if I could receive messages during my times of communing with God. I had been writing in prayer journals for years, but that was one-way communication. I did all the talking. I knew that God communicated with me through the Bible, but I yearned for more. Increasingly, I wanted to hear what God had to say to me personally on a given day. All right, so look, it's that statement, but I yearned for more. Scripture wasn't enough. That's what I'm talking about. That idea runs really deep in American Christianity, and it's completely baked into Jesus' calling. And without realizing it, that's what this child who asked the question, that's what this child picked up on. I know we have the Bible, but why doesn't God do more? Right? That's, that's behind the question. But, okay, look at the results in Scripture when God has done what we call the more, the signs, the wonders, and so forth. What happens? People forget. And that's what, that's what we forget. Experiences, they don't last. Look, experiences can be wonderful, okay? and I, I don't want to dismiss them or disparage them. And I'm sure many listeners that have had life-altering experiences, I, I've seen things in ministry that are truly moving experientially. All right, These, these are wonderful things. So I, not for a second, I do not want to disparage these experiences. What I'm saying, though, is that confidence can't be securely built on experiences. We need something more certain. Remember what Peter said? We have that in the revealed words of God in Scripture. 
Now we've addressed God's existence before, so I, I'm not going to go into more detail on that part of the question right now. But the short of it is just as a brief reminder, we can come at that question from an inference to the best explanation. So reasoning from effect to cause. The universe is an effect. What cause is sufficient to explain it? Or we could just go straight for the resurrection of Jesus and make the case for that. And that would be great. But we'll leave that for another time. For now, what I want to do is just, I want to emphasize the confidence we have in God's word. That is where certainty is found. We are in our series with Pastor Jonathan Connor. Kids have questions. This is issues, etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Folks, Lutheran Church Missouri Synod chaplains deliver word and sacrament ministry to our military personnel and their families. Find out about their service at lcms.org slash armed forces. LCMS ministry to the armed forces, lcms.org slash armed forces. The next question, where did God come from? Why do we say he was born of a virgin, but also made heaven and earth? What does it mean to inwardly digest God's Word? Find out in Pastor Will Whedon's column in the latest Issues Etc. journal. We'll send it to you for free. Just click the red journal subscription button in the right-hand column at issuesetc.org. In the Wittenberg Trail feature, Dr. John Warwick Montgomery tells his story of finding confessional Lutheranism to be the most scripturally faithful theology. The free online Issues Etc. journal, issuesetc.org. Psalm 144.1 Blessed be the Lord my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. Those serving in the armed forces want LCMS chaplains. We need courageous pastors to bring the gospel and sacraments to those protecting our nation, along with wise counsel and the peace found only in Christ Jesus. If you are between the age of 26 and 43 and have a heart for ministry in the armed forces, call 314-996-1337 or email lcmschaps at lcms.org. Others talk. We have something to say. You're listening to Issues Etc. This is Pastor Matthew Harrison, President of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. The LCMS operates the second largest parochial school system in the United States. What can you expect from a Lutheran Church Missouri Synod school? There's one race, the human race. And Jesus died for the sins of every man, woman, and child from every land and every nation. Life begins at conception. All life is precious from womb to tomb. And every student, parent, and teacher is created in the very image of God. There's right and wrong, and we know which is which from the Ten Commandments. There are only two sexes, male and female, He created them. Marriage is the lifelong union of one man and one woman. There's such a thing as objective, absolute truth, and it's found in the person and work of Jesus Christ and His Word. To find a Lutheran Church Missouri Synod school near you, visit lcms.org schools. Criticism. I just had to call in to respond to this week's installment of Never Trump Drivel from Terry Mattingly. Compliments. I love the interviews and insights because they help me battle the slings and arrows of outrageous theology and practice. Clarification. Is there a point where 
without baptism, infants go to heaven, and after which time they go to hell if they're not baptized. The Issues Etc. Comment Line, 618-223-8382. For your next family vacation, consider Our Beach House, a charming three-bedroom vacation rental on beautiful Siesta Key. Just off Sarasota, Florida, Siesta Key Beach, consistently voted America's Best, is just 100 steps away. Whether you're watching the sunset over the Gulf of Mexico or frolicking in the warm surf, you and your family will fall in love with Siesta Key. Check us out at SiestaKeyRentalGenie.com or call Virginia at 941-266-1858. Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. It's part 18 of our series, Kids Have Questions. Pastor Jonathan Connor is our guest pastor of Zion Lutheran Church in Manning, Iowa. So here's the question, Jonathan. Where did God come from? Why do we say that he was born from the Virgin Mary but made heaven and earth? That's a wonderful question. I mean, that's a really insightful question from a child. I think it's really important for us to kind of hear ourselves sometimes because we'll in one breath say, God is eternal and God was born of Mary. And it's normal for a child to say, well, wait a minute. Now, how how does that work? That's a reasonable question. And I'm glad the child asks it. So I say to the child, what a great question. Let's start with who God is. As we've discussed in class, God is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Further, God is eternal. So there has never been a time when God has not existed. I know this is hard to understand, but this is what reality and Scripture teach. Think about it. If ever there was a point when nothing existed, as in no God and no universe, what would be here today? Nothing. because from nothing comes nothing. But there isn't nothing today. So something or someone is eternal. We know the universe had a beginning, so it is not eternal. That leaves only God. And the Bible tells us that God created the heavens and the earth. Now, what about being born of Mary? Now remember, God is triune, so Jesus was born of Mary, but when the Bible says that, it's not saying that this is when Jesus came into existence. Jesus has always existed with the Father and the Holy Spirit. What Jesus did in his incarnation, that's what we call it when he was born of Mary, was take on a human body. So he has always existed, but he hasn't always had a human body. He took on that human body when he was born of the Virgin Mary. So that's how we can say that God created the heavens and the earth and that he and Christ was born of the Virgin Mary. That's where the answer to the child ends. Let me just expand upon that very briefly because I think this is such a fascinating thing for us to talk about. Okay, so we've addressed the where did God come from question before, so we won't go into any more detail on that right now. But we've only scratched the surface on the question of the creator being born of Mary. I think this is worthy of such deep meditation. And I was actually just recently given occasion to appreciate this anew. I'm going to be a little bit vague here on purpose, but 
and you can understand why when I tell you. It was a conversation regarding Santa Claus, all right? I only want to say this for our purposes here. I know that Santa Claus, for many parents and children, he is some sort of enchantment for Christmas, that he he enchants Christmas. But parents who are listening, if I could get you to understand anything, please understand this. If Santa is anything for you, he's, he's the echo and the shadow of the true enchanter, Jesus. There's just so much to meditate on in the incarnation of Jesus. And I'll just put it this way. Santa's got nothing on Jesus. And maybe for the sake of time, I'll just share just a couple hymn verses that really start to get at this. So I think what I'm trying to say is we're at the last day of Christmas. Tomorrow we celebrate Epiphany uh, here. There's so much in the incarnation of Jesus to enchant Christmas, to make it magical, if you will, that I think we should be focusing our efforts on the greater enchanter and not the lesser. So let me show you how some of our hymnody has reflected upon this. And I just want to share a few verses because these are so profound. One of my favorite Christmas hymns is, Oh, Jesus Christ, Thy Manger Is. And this is one of the verses from there. And it almost moves me to tears of joy every time I sing and read this. It chokes me up. He whom the sea and wind obey doth come to serve the sinner in great meekness. Thou God's own Son, with us art one, dost join us and our children in our weakness. Parents, give your children that verse. Help them meditate on that. That enchants Christmas. Or, Savior, the nations come. Savior, the nations come. Virgin Son, make here your home. Marvel now, O heaven and earth, that the Lord chose such a birth, not by human flesh and blood, but by the Spirit of our God, was the Word of God made flesh, woman's offspring, pure and fresh. Here a maid was found with child, yet remained a virgin mild. In her womb, this truth was shown. God was there upon his throne. I mean, that's enchanting, right? That's powerful. And just one more, one more hymn, a couple verses. A great and mighty wonder. A couple verses. The word becomes incarnate and yet remains on high. And cherubim sing anthems to shepherds from the sky. Since all he comes to ransom, by all be he adored. The infant born in Bethlehem, the Savior and the Lord. You see, that's how God enchants Christmas, how God enchants the world. And it's that enchantment that I think we really want to try to communicate to our children, that God is eternal and God was born of Mary. It's absolutely amazing. One final question for Pastor Jonathan Connor in our series, Kids Have Questions. We come back. What do people do when they have no church? Sanctifying your daily errands with the Word of God. You're listening to Issues Etc. Here's an easy way for you to help us cast ChristNet on the Internet. Subscribe, rate, and review the Issues Etc. podcast with your podcast provider. Type Issues Etc. in your podcast provider, hit the subscription button, and leave us a five-star review. 
This will make it easier for other podcast listeners to find issues, etc. Help us reach more listeners in 2024. Subscribe, rate, and review Issues Etc. today. Our Christian faith is under constant attack, and we must be proactive in keeping our children in the church. At Faith Lutheran School in Plano, Texas, we believe that an education rooted in God's Word is one that stands against the very gates of hell. Nothing in this world is more important. Offering a rigorous classical Lutheran education, we provide in-person and live online remote learning opportunities for preschool through grade 12. To learn more, visit flsplano.org, flsplano.org. If you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Dr. Russell Dawn, president of Concordia University, Chicago. Indeed, the quest for truth is at the core of a university's purpose. The liberal arts, illuminated by the revealed truths of Scripture, are powerful for equipping students for a life of self-governance. A disciple is one who follows the master. So what does it mean to follow Jesus? He said that it means to take up one's cross. The cross is thus the symbol of dying for others, of dying to self for the sake of serving others. And a life of service is a life well-lived. Truth. Freedom, vocation, Concordia University, Chicago, cuchicago.edu. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. It's our series, Kids Have Questions. Pastor Jonathan Connor is our guest. In about 10 minutes, it's This Week in Pop Christianity with Chris Rosebro. A final question, Jonathan. What do people do when they have no church? Yeah, okay. Let's work through this. First to the child. Sadly, many people don't have a church. So they don't hear of God's love for them in Jesus. They don't have their identity grounded in Him. They don't understand that He is their Creator. They don't understand that He is their Redeemer, their Savior. And they don't understand why God's law is good for us, why living according to it is good for us. So they don't. They go through life not knowing. They make their own rules. They live their own way. And they have to create their own identity, which is a huge burden. And sadly, our world tries to push identity in the letters LGBTQ+. This is a terrible place to build identity because it assumes we are at heart sexual beings. This isn't true. We are at heart religious beings created for a relationship with our Creator, and He gives us our identity as male or female, image bearer of God for whom Christ died to reconcile us to Him. But people who have no church don't know this, so they have to create their own identity. And they have to come up with their own ideas about life and death and what happens after we die. But who are they to come up with these ideas? They're just creatures. They need what we all need to know who we are, where we came from, why we're here, what happens when we die. And God has given us a church for that, a church that gathers regularly to hear his word in which he answers all of these questions for us. Okay, so that's where my answer ends. Now, I want to expand upon this. First, I want to quote from the Small Cult articles, because I love the way 
it just summarizes like its definition or description of the church. It says, the church is holy believers and the little sheep who hear the voice of their shepherd. I just love that description of the church. Lately, I've been explaining the church like this. The church is the gathering of the gathered. Now, obviously, there's a lot baked into that. So I have in mind Luther's explanation to the third article of the creed, right? The Holy Spirit calls, gathers, and enlightens. I have the meaning of the word church as assembly in mind. I have the idea of the three-dimensional nature of the church and the pulpit, font, and altar, right? The word and the sacraments. So the church is the gathering of the gathered to hear Christ's word, to receive Christ's grace, and to give Christ praise. And I'm really emphasizing, this is intentional, given the context of our 21st century America, I'm emphasizing the three-dimensional nature of the church. It exists in three dimensions. It is not a virtual thing. It's a three-dimensional thing, a three-dimensional gathering. God's grace in word and sacraments enters three dimensions. And God gathers the gathered around these three dimensions. And I'm emphasizing this because, like I said, about our 21st century context, one of the greatest undermining forces to these three dimensions, this three-dimensional nature of the church, is the two-dimensional virtual world of what Samuel James calls in his book, Digital Liturgies, which I highly recommend. He calls the social internet. So the social internet disembodies reality. It, it flattens it. It erases the embodiness, the embodied givenness of humanity, and it reduces us to profiles and pictures and shares. And I don't have all the time I need to go into this, but the social internet, the disembodying of humanity and the flattening of reality, it is affecting people's understanding of reality and of the church. And you know, if people haven't been paying attention to demographic trends, we really need to start because more people have left the church in the last 25 years. And these are just the, the frames of reference that demographers are using. And we could argue about how effectively these events actually brought people into the church. But more people have left the church in the last 25 years than were brought to the church in the First Great Awakening, the Second Great Awakening, and the Billy Graham Crusades combined. It's been called the great de-churching. Now, and this is important, it's not that people are becoming atheists, because by and large, they're not actually becoming atheists. I just finished a fascinating book by a woman named Tara Burton called uh, Strange Rites, New Religions for a Godless World. She's not writing from a Christian perspective, but she's just studying the demographic trends. But she makes the case that that atheism for our 21st century culture, it's too dry. It's too disenchanted, to go back to that word, too disenchanted for people. This is actually a really important insight. So we've spent a lot of time over the last couple of decades arguing against the new atheism, and rightly so, but the new atheism is pretty much dead. What we're facing today is a new spiritualism. So we in the church, we're really going to have to key into this, because at base, is a desire for an enchanted world, for a world that has meaning, for a world that pulses with significance beyond the material. And if you haven't picked up on this yet, we have this in the church, right? This is what we're all about. But because the social internet has basically deified the individual, 
people no longer see the need for what's often called the institutional church. But like I said, they still see the need for spirituality. So they're essentially creating what uh, Tara Burton calls intuitional, instead of institutional, intuitional churches. So these virtual gatherings around custom-made spirituality, which is just spirituality which aligns with the desires of the human heart. And we all have to understand just how seductive and intoxicating this can be and how ultimately destructive this is. Right? I mean, Carl Truman, he lays this out in his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, right? when he talks about expressive individualism. This is the prevailing idea of our age. But this idea doesn't become plausible without the social internet. The social internet makes this idea seem reasonable. You choose reality. You choose your identity. You express you. But here's what Christ Church is saying. We're saying, well, actually, that's a bad idea. That's what's gotten us into this mess we're all in. The truth is God defines reality. God gives your identity, and God defines you. This is actually part of God's good gifts to us. This is a really important point for us to appreciate here, to help people see how identity is a part of God's gift to us. Because you see, the burden of defining yourself is a huge burden. I mean, initially it seems liberating, but it's actually a burden just too big to carry. Let me give you an example. I want you to imagine a teacher or a professor assigning a paper with no limiting criteria. In other words, write a paper, turn it in on Monday. That's the assignment. Write a paper, turn it in on Monday. Now, that may seem liberating at first, but I want people to notice what the professor has done. She's moved the burden off of herself onto her students. Because the point of the criteria is that it takes the burden off the students and places it on the professor. So in the church, what we're saying is God removes the burden of self-definition and he bears it himself. He bears the burden of identity for us. He embodies us as male and female. He redeems us. He baptizes us into Christ. And he bears that burden and gifts this identity to us. This is really important. Now, I have one other idea, one other um, insight I want to offer about the church, about the gathering of the gathered, which is really important. I want to highlight the significance of the church's liturgy. And more specifically, I want us to appreciate what it's doing. The liturgy is not about conveying information. It's actually about presenting Christ to us and about ordering our desires. The liturgy is actually saying to us, love these things, desire these things. Now, why is it doing that? It's doing that because it knows, the church knows, that we will pursue what we love, right? What did Jesus say about treasure in the Sermon on the Mount, right? He said, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What he's saying is, your heart always follows your treasure. Your heart pursues what you love. So the liturgy is about shaping your loves. And James Smith writes about this marvelously in his book, You Are What You Love. He describes the liturgy as a narrative that re-narrates us, as a story that restories us. I like to say that the church's liturgy remagnetizes us toward our true north, Jesus. And it's something that happens over time as we hear 
and rehear the story as we confess and reconfess the faith. It takes time, it takes practice, but it shapes us. And people who lack the church lack this. Now, it's not that they're not being shaped, because they most certainly are. I mentioned this earlier in our interview, but our world is a liturgical world vying for our desires. So people who lack the church are basically single ships casting about in the ocean of the latest cultural storm. So I just want to end with one more hymn verse, and then then we can wrap up with this, because I think this just says it well. Uh, This is again from Jesus Christ, thy manger is. The world may hold her wealth in gold, but thou, my heart, keep Christ as thy true treasure. To him hold fast until at last a crown be thine and honor in full measure. Pastor Jonathan Connor is pastor of Zion Lutheran Church in Manning, Iowa. Jonathan, thank you again. Thanks, Todd. Always a joy to be with you. Kids Have Questions has been brought to you in part today by LCMS Schools. The Lutheran Church Missouri Synod operates the second largest parochial school system in the U.S. To find a Lutheran school near you, visit lcms.org schools, lcms.org schools. Pastor Chris Rosebro will join us next for This Week in Pop Christianity. We'll walk through a few 2024 prophecies. This week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, we wrap up Colossians with The New Life at Home and in the Workplace, A Door for the Word, Greetings Part 1 and Greetings Part 2. Then we launch into Paul's epistle to Titus on Friday with The Hope of Eternal Life. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, for The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, your daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study on demand. Listen at thewordendures.org or your favorite podcast provider. Have you ever wanted a resource to share with first-time visitors of your congregation to help them understand why we worship the way we worship, why your church gathers the way they gather to receive our Lord's gifts? Pick up your copy of the January issue of The Lutheran Witness, which is The Divine Service, A User's Guide. To order a copy, visit cph.org witness or visit our website to learn more, witness.lcms.org. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. Smartest listeners in radio. You're listening to Issues Etc. You're personally invited to join Lutherans for Life and Why for Life in celebrating under the theme, Just As I Am, January 14th through the 20th during Life Week 2024. Each theme day will explore a distinct aspect of life ministry through local activities, online educational events, interviews, and more. For additional information, visit lutheransforlife.org. Lutherans for Life, equipping Lutherans and their neighbors to be gospel-motivated voices for life. lutheransforlife.org. Memoria Press's award-winning Latin programs have successfully taught hundreds of thousands of students across the world. Their easy-to-use, step-by-step Latin curriculum provides students with an academic vocabulary, a mastery of English grammar, and strong critical thinking skills. If you're interested in learning more, visit them at memoriapress.com and use the coupon code LPR24 at checkout. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time.